leaders determine the environment. And if you get the environment right, then you can move your business in a positive direction. Whatever that direction happens to you, you can define the direction. That can be different for each company, for each hospital, but it still begins with the leader. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPaws Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. Furpaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of Furpaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes. Email me at andrea at furpaws.us or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. We are super excited, positive leadership listeners, to have the one and the only Rob Best. He is the Director of Leadership Development at VCA Hospitals and is amazing if you have ever heard him talk. Rob Best, thank you so much for coming on the show. David and I are blessed to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. Rob, we have a tradition on this podcast where we don't read stuffy bios, and instead, we would love to hear you tell the story about how you got to be where you are today. So give us a little background on who Rob is and and, uh, what you bring to the table. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just happened to be pretty good at sports, so I did that for a while. It it paid for my education. I had good mentors, so I I doubled up on the education, got, got multiple degrees, Still didn't know what I wanted to do, so I kept playing sports after college. Earned a few dollars doing that. I knew I didn't want to be in sports as a long-term career, though. You know, I didn't. If I wasn't playing sports, I knew I didn't want to be coaching, managing. I didn't want anything to do with the sports industry. It wasn't for me. I had a job opportunity while I was playing basketball, and it was a really good job opportunity. So in my mid twenties, I stopped playing basketball, and I, I ended up with this executive director position with a company that was growing really fast. And the president of the company brought me under his wing and, and mentored me. And, and he, he allowed me to stumble and fall as I was growing a division of his company in a different state from where his headquarters were. And we did really well. And, and through those experiences with that company, I, I found an interest in working with leaders. 
and by chance met a, an influential consultant in the field of leadership who was my next mentor. Through him, I got to work with lots of industries, lots of people, lots of levels, and that that learning on the job, if you would, over the course of the next five years was just amazing. Um, nothing that you can pay for and receive in a formalized education environment. While I was engaged with this consulting company, I, I met someone who happened to work in the veterinary industry. And over the course of the next three or four years, we developed a relationship. He eventually began to offer me jobs. And I continued to say no. All the while, he was, I'm sure, learning me and figuring me out and eventually said, you know what? I, I know how to bring you in. It's with a challenge. You've done all this amazing stuff over here. I'm curious to know if you are capable of doing it in the veterinary industry. So I'd like to set up a one-year experiment. And let's let's see if this if this works out. Let's see if someone from outside the industry can have some impact inside the industry. And that was, gosh, I think a little over 12 years ago. By the end of that first year, I still didn't know what I was doing in the industry. However, I knew that I was falling in love with the industry. So I have I have no plans to ever leave veterinary medicine. Whatever it is I can do to continue providing some sort of of value to this industry, I, I will do. So I, I, I stumbled into veterinary medicine and because of my interest in leadership, my postgraduate education focused on human behavior. And so I went out and acquired some certifications and some licenses and some various areas of human behavior that helps to support my ability to guide leaders as they guide their teams. So I, I think that's probably the best summary to give a full perspective of my bio. <laughs> I love it. I love your story, Rob. It's great. And I, the reason why we do that is, is exactly that, because everybody seems to happen to have some type of, you know, oh, I stumbled into veterinary medicine or um, this was not my intention or I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up kind of thing. And I, I love hearing that. You know, we don't, again, I don't, the, the bios seem to be so stuffy and we talk about the story and we, we get to learn so much about the networking opportunities that you talk about and some other things. So I love it. If you could share your favorite book or podcast or CE or class or something that left a lasting effect on you, what would that be? It's hard. It's hard because there's so many different directions that I can go. And there's just so much out there, right? I have to pick so one. Much out there today. <laughs> yeah, and it's, right? And it's, you're right. And it's, it's not, it's, it, there's so much out there and it's so accessible, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a quick Google search and we can have the right. world at our fingertips. And I, I think too. Or from Amazon the, the next day. Yeah. yeah exactly. If, if it's audio, I have it now. Yes. <laughs> I have to wait till right. the next day. Um, th there's, I think there's been two that have thus far stood out more than the others. And early in my, in my leadership development, I got to spend some time with Disney and I, I attended some of their executive training courses and was fortunate enough to develop a couple of relationships with, with people who had some storied history with Disney. And, and so some of my initial, I'll call it foundational understanding for organizational development really stemmed from those Disney experiences. And to this day, I will draw from, even if it's not the same methodologies as Disney, I'll draw from the baselines of where they have always rooted their culture 
and how they make their decisions. Whether you agree with their decisions or not, it works for them and, and you can learn from what's worked for them and identify how to flex and pivot and develop things that work for you while utilizing some of the same theories that work for Disney to get to their decision-making processes. It's always, and always will stick with me. Like, love, or hate Disney. Um, I love Disney. And yes, ditto. I'm a Disney fan. I'm right there yeah. with you. You know, they so, were pioneers actually in, um, so it's an interesting story. So there is a behavioral economics kind of, I don't know the exact concept, but essentially when people know what's happening and what's going on, they go less crazy. And so from what I understand, and I, you know, Disney could, I hope they don't sue me and I don't think this is completely wrong. And maybe, you know, Rob, but from what I understand, um, they pioneered the, um, your wait time is X long and what, where it came from was basically they were, you know, they were kind of thinking about how to do this and they basically said, you know, what if we just tell people what the wait time is and we make it long? Like we're not saying, oh, the wait time is, I mean, sometimes it'll say 10 minutes, right? But when it's busy, it's two to three hours. You know, they found that the number of customer complaints actually dropped. And so where I think it comes from, and it makes sense, but it's this kind of thinking about things a little strangely is first of all, you, you tell them the real deal, right? You say it's going to be two to three hours. And then people, because they, at a Disney park, not so much maybe at an emergency clinic for vet med, but at a Disney park, they have options, right? So they're going to go around Pirates of the Caribbean, hit up Splash Mountain, and then circle back, right? And then, of course, they built on that with check-ins and speed passes and all these kinds of things. So, you know, as you said, love them or hate them, they're... Yeah, customer, customer service, service. That's right. emotional, I don't want to say emotional intelligence, behavioral analysis stuff is, I think, probably over the top, you know, yeah, top notch. Sure. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, for sure. So it's fascinating. So you have a couple of interesting buzzwords, I guess you could say, attached to your kind of CV, and we'd love to know more. So neuroleadership deception detection, and statement analysis. I will admit I know nothing about any of those. I think I can probably put together what neuroleadership is, but I assume it's not, you know, brainy <laughs> leadership or leader, leading from your brain Googling or whatever. this as a... Yeah, as yeah <laughs> pinky in the brain kind of stuff. Um, right. So, you know, these, uh, these seem to maybe be all kind of possibly related to emotional intelligence and how to, you know, come off to people or how people come off to you and how you handle it what umbrella do these all fall under and what makes them so special to you? And could you tell us a little bit about each? I'm, I'm sure you could talk for hours, but we would love to know a little bit more about these fascinating, fascinating buzzwords. I, I had a moment on stage when I was, I was given a keynote maybe about five years ago, there was some Q and a at the end. And we talked about topics specifically relating to body language and deception, detection, statement analysis. And, and there were questions about, Similar to your question here is, is about the background. What, what is it that's that's driving you and your interest behind these things? And I'd always believed that I sought for this extended education to help advance my career. And it did. It, it helped me tremendously in my ability to help support leaders. Neuroleadership is, is the neuroscience of human behavior applied to business leadership. Deception detection, statement analysis, and, and, and body language included is connected yet very different. This was a intelligence training that many of our government intelligence agencies will, will attend. You know, FBI, CIA, DIA, uh, even the Navy SEALs, people that, that have this training and the people that operate this training who are in Virginia and Washington, D.C., 
These are the people who train our federal agents how to interrogate and how to profile. It's a, it's a very deep-rooted understanding of, of human behavior from the perspective of science, not theory. And when you piece the, the varieties of these elements together, it can help you to better understand influence and drive and how to support people that are in positions of high levels of responsibility especially if their responsibility includes people leadership. If they're responsible for other people, their greatest potential is how they influence those other people. It's a very, I think, different set of of education uh, points for veterinary medicine. I haven't seen anyone else with this background, and I don't know if that makes me a little ahead of the curve or if I'm just out in left field and and someone needs to wrangle me back in, David, I'm not sure. <laughs> but so far, people seem to really connect well with the science of human behavior. And they seem to appreciate what the, the meaningfulness is behind learning what it truly means to influence people in ways that are, are supportive. I have to agree with you, Rob, because I tend to geek out on some of this stuff. And I know all these chunky kind of words that we have to to almost get through and chomp on and chew on and figure out like, how do we use this in veterinary medicine, right? We're so used to this traditional leadership style. When we're talking about emotional intelligence, like this is something new for us, at least for sure in veterinary medicine, right? Like I just remember 10 years ago with just a good old boys, you know, in, in, in the mm-hmm. old school thought of like, we're just cranking through cases. And now we talk about leading our staff and not just professional development, but soft skills and essential skills and getting along and culture development. And then you really start getting into these some of these other chunky words like leading with authenticity and transparency and stuff. And then people start to get really <laughs> uncomfortable, right? Yes. And so I love it. I geek out. I am way out there with you in left field. And, and, and I would love to hear what kind of these leadership skills and essential skills, these soft skills, what are these things that nobody's talking about? And, and let's talk about it, right? Let's peel off this onion layer and say, what do we do with this? What are they? What do they do with it? How can we integrate these into our management style? How can we bring this to the table, to our practices? Yeah. How can we talk about it at staff meetings and team meetings? And like, how do we integrate this with who we are when it's something that honestly, we don't know what they even are, let alone put it to use. Like, how do we get started with all this stuff? It's interesting. And that's a, it's a hard question to, to approach, especially if we look at individual practices or, or even just separate the larger organizations as, as entities and in addition to the individual practices, because everyone's going to have their own set of, of challenges and obstacles. And, and, and so when you talk about, well, where do we start? Well, a lot of it depends on, well, where are you today? And then we can talk about a starting point. Your, your mentioning of emotional intelligence is, you know, David mentioned it, you mentioned it's, it's spot on in terms of having a consistency for a common denominator. All of this, this information somehow does connect to emotional intelligence. And when we think about the, the first part of your question, you know, what is it that, that we're not talking about? What are leaders not addressing right now? And, and even that's tough because coming off of, of this, this, gosh, what's, what's going to be a year and a half, almost two years soon, 
with what we've experienced in the pandemic, so much of what wasn't being talked about is now with, yeah, with right. You know, the compassion and, fatigue and the burnout and the exactly overload, and, and, emotional overload. In the positive, we're getting to a deeper layer now of of true psychology and science where you know clinically speaking we can we can argue both sides of whether or not our industry is truly experiencing compassion fatigue because clinically it may not be compassion fatigue it's right. very possible it might yeah. be ethical fatigue. right yep Which right. Yep. kind of a huge mic drop too right like i heard that right a while ago i think melissa tompkins was the one that mentioned when you really study compassion fatigue and give people the compassion fatigue inventory that they don't actually score, you know, scary on compassion fatigue, as you mentioned, Rob, it might be different. Yeah. And again, I'm not stating as a certainty, I'm introducing additional thoughts for us to consider. And when we start looking at the science, it, it brings about more questions. And, and I, and I like that about our industry. I love it about our industry right now because of what we can continue to discover in ways that can truly be beneficial to our, our well-being. And there is one thought, however, that, that came to mind in regards to what I don't hear people talk, not in veterinary medicine. In other industries, I hear and have heard for at least a few years this topic being more prominent. But I haven't heard much of this topic at all being discussed in veterinary medicine. And, and that's the, the topic of unconscious bias. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. an environmental topic. Yes. But the leaders determine the environment. So it needs to begin with the leaders in terms of the conversation. There was a, you know, in, in the world of neural leadership, neuroscientists began looking eight or nine years ago at what are the great, what is the greatest gap between science and business activity? And they identified bias as being the greatest gap that exists from eight years ago. It was eight years of research and about three years ago, they, they started to make their research available, um, where now you can find all sorts of stuff in the Harvard Business Review on this. And, and bias was, was number one. It was top of the list. And, and, and now there's all kinds of amazing research to back how to approach the topic of unconscious bias and how great is the timing with what our country's experienced over the last couple of years to, to have some additional reassurance for business leaders, for how to approach some of these conversations and in ways that really help to include people and to support people. So that, that's one that comes to mind. I haven't heard anybody or seen anybody really giving much conversation around, around unconscious bias. That, that's one I'd like to see hmm. become more prominent. So you are known for, you know, lecturing, you, you don't lecture on inventory, you don't lecture on, you know, financials, you don't lecture on even to some extent, compassion fatigue or, or whatnot, you really lecture on leadership, and a lot of team development stuff. And it's a really interesting lane. It's a narrow lane. But it's funny, because when you look at you know, conferences or, or speakers, many times it's just, you know, one talk on leadership, you know, being a great leader or, you know, developing a team and you can give eight and you have amazing lecture title names. And so what does leadership mean to you, Rob? I'm sure that that's a Pandora's box, but I think that <laughs> it's important, you know, we, we all inquiring minds want to know, like, what is being a leader or the action or the being of a leader, right? Leadership mean to you you know, and, and talk to us a little bit about through that meaning, how you teach and coach, you know, emotionally intelligent, let's call it above the line, you know, type of leadership behaviors. It's a question I, that 
whether in conversation or, or podcast, it's, it's a common topic of conversation. What does leadership mean to you? And, you know, you, you, you'll, you can always start with those dictionary definitions. But what it really means for me is leaders determine the environment. If you get the environment right, then you can move your business in a positive direction. Whatever that direction happens to you, you can define the direction. That can be different for each company, for each hospital. But it still begins with the leader who has to determine the environment that's going to be appropriate for, for moving that business forward. And, and the baseline that, that I like to draw from in terms of, of a leader determining environment is their ability to create a safe environment, right? That becomes the key. The emotional and psychological safety that is, is evident or that exists in that environment. The, the safety to fall as opposed to fail, right? I, I didn't fail. I fell. Why, did it, why do I perceive it as falling? Because I know that somebody has my back. I know that someone's going to reach out a hand to help me up, help me learn from it and move forward so I don't stumble over that same block the next time. That's what leadership means to me, determining an environment that's rooted in emotional and psychological safety so that your team has the confidence to, to fall. I have to tell you right there, like you mentioned almost like my favorite leadership topic, which is psychological safety. When I talk and coach and lead managers and leadership teams, and I talk to them all the time about trust, and you can't have trust without psychological safety, and you can't go any farther until we build that. Nothing else can be done until we establish some psychological safety and some trust with our leadership team. And I just, uh, I, I just like, I'm like, scream from the rooftops. I'm so excited you said it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I, I got to share. There's a, this is in human medicine. This is a pretty telling story in human medicine. There was a study that was being done to take a look at, at levels of emotional safety and psychological safety. And there was two hospitals that were being studied side by side. There was one specific result that had stark differences and the researchers did a deeper dive on these two differences to learn about them. But one hospital had a much higher level of medical errors, whereas the other hospital had a very, very, very low level of medical errors. And, and there was just there was such a stark difference. They did a deeper dive. And what they learned was that the hospital, well, ultimately, both hospitals had approximately the same level or number of medical errors, where the difference was is the hospital with higher levels of emotional safety on the team, those team members were confident in communicating to their superiors when the errors occurred. The hospital that didn't have the emotional safety, by contrast, they had a very fear-based environment. When medical errors occurred in that hospital, the associates would not communicate the errors to the superiors. And we, we work in a medical environment. Consider the negative implications if we are not communicating when a medical error occurs. Like that's you think the devastating results that can that can come from that, as opposed to a safe environment when we can communicate an error, learn from it, and create processes to help ensure it doesn't occur again. That's epic. And, yes. you know, let's talk about psychological safety for a minute. We're, we all have some fear to some extent. And the fear is, you know, I want to do, it's not good, good grammar. I want to do good. You know, I want to do well. I want to be liked. I want to see that my work is done well. I don't want to make mistakes, right? Everybody hates that. How do we remove fear 
from the workplace, Rob, how do how do we how do we cultivate this this workplace of psychological safety? Talk to us a little bit about you know how you do that. Well, let's start with it's not easy. And Amen. Why don't you say that again? It is not easy to remove fear from a workplace, and science proves that. the The proof in the pudding, if you would, of science is our brains at neutral are fear based. It requires from a business environment, it requires the leadership to establish a consistency of intentional behaviors that can help minimize, or if possible in certain situations, remove the natural fears that exist. The fears are there. You know, if, if any one of us three was to, was to walk into a hospital and they happen to, to know of our experience in veterinary medicine, Perhaps our role with that hospital is, is to help consult for the team and help them grow a, a new a new service into their into their practice. Our presence alone is going to increase their fear. If if we happen to buy into a practice, now we're walking in as as a leader who's an who's an owner, owner right? And different role, mm-hmm. different role. And let's say this is a, a really highly technically a, a, a capable hospital. They have a text messaging system that works really well with their clients. And we walk into the treatment area and one of our tech team members is text messaging some updates to a client whose patient just got out of surgery. There's, there's a high level of trust on this team. There's a high level of safety on this team. The instinct that's driven by the brain when we first walk into that treatment area is going to cause for the tech to respond mentally with, oh my gosh, I hope he or she doesn't think I'm doing something inappropriate on my phone. Yes, that's right. Right. It's, It's a natural instinctual. We can minimize that with learning intentional behaviors that help people feel safe in our presence. And this is when we talk about some more of the, the depths of, of these, these behaviors that, that relate to authenticity, how to expand your emotionally intelligent vocabulary. And again, it gets very detailed and granular and it takes time. Hence, it's not easy. It becomes a long-term commitment that is going to require consistent self-examination it's not easy. I mean, and this is where we can start pouring in all of our all of our methods from Brene Brown and vulnerability and Simon Sinek and leaders eating last. And mm-hmm. All of these things apply. And where is our common denominator? If our goal is to remove fear from the workplace, we have to learn intentional behaviors. If we pull from someone like Brene Brown, we need to become more vulnerable with our team. We can use a tool that that's called the Johari window. This this is a tool that is designed to influence self-disclosure and intentional seeking of feedback. It opens lines of communication that the way this model works expands what we call the blind window. And where the blind window exists is where a lot of fear exists. And as a leader, if we can expand our blind window, this is just one of many tools, of course, but if we can expand this blind window through a simple task of self-disclosing and requesting feedback of which shows vulnerability. Hence me mentioning Brene Brown. Yeah. Little, little things like this, if we learn them and we practice them consistently and we start to add to them over time, 
is where we can start to shift some environments. Now, there, there's going to be a different story if you're walking into an environment that is currently very fear-based. That, that's a there's a different approach required there. If, if we if we talk about an environment that's that's just what we'll say commonly in the pink zone. If we call the fear zone the red zone, and we call emotional and psychological safety the green zone, the middle area is going to be this pink zone where a lot of businesses in and out of veterinary medicine operate today. This pink zone of we mentioned unconscious bias earlier. One of the subsets of unconscious bias is groupthink. Groupthink is that theory of just going with the flow. Even if you disagree with the decision that's being made, you don't want to ruffle the feathers. You don't want to rock the boat. You're just going to go with the flow. Well, in that moment, it might work, but this is a very passive aggressive approach to business leadership. If you're a leader in the room and you're not speaking up and sharing what your thoughts or perspectives are, in the short term, it got you through the meeting. In the long term, you're going to lack buy-in. Yeah, it's going to bite you in the ass for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one of the things when you talk about Brene Brown that are big for me when I coach teams is shame and blame and getting rid of the finger pointing and the shaming. And I think that's something that traditionally in veterinary medicine has been, at least in my experience, has been on the table. It's been acceptable. It's it's commonplace. And so when I walk into a practice and I see shaming and blaming and pointing fingers and, you know, he did it and it just is like fingernails down a chalkboard for me. And I just want to like <laughs> yes. scream from the rooftops yes. yet again. Right. And that's a great example. That's a great example of there's so many varieties of in, in something like that is where we, we may just start with this simple understanding because of the current environment, we now need a desire to learn how to seek resolution as opposed to seeking fault. Yeah. The, the shaming and blaming mm-hmm. is I'm seeking fault and I'm going to deflect because it wasn't me as opposed to it doesn't matter if it was you or not. Let's collectively have an environment where we all seek resolution. Yeah. Fix and it. We, What's, we, yeah. Fix the situation instead of assigning blame. Yeah, exactly. I feel like one of the big common things that we do as leaders, and I say we because I absolutely, like you said, I, I fall. I fall hard. Like I love it. Simon Sinek says some days are ahead days and some days are behind days, right? And there's days or yeah. a lot of days for me that were behind days. And <laughs> yeah. and I am first to say that shaming and blaming for me is I, I try to be hypersensitive to that. And so I feel like that's one common mistake I feel in that we make as leaders in veterinary practices is there some other things that you would say, you know, something along those lines that we, as leaders, we do on a regular basis and that we can say, if these are happening today, stop, just stop doing it and realize that like, oh, I see it happening. I got to pump the brakes on and try something else, do something else, say something else, recognize it and pivot from that. Do you have any of those that you can share with us? You know, where, where my mind goes first in, in terms of something that might provide some value for for people who core listening and and may give some action they could take right away. For example, I mentioned a few moments ago that our brains are rooted in fear. Being rooted in fear, it drives fear-based behaviors. And one of the most common and again, natural, this is is not something that is learned. This is a human condition, is defensive behavior. So we talk about what what is this? What is something we do? We can stop. We can stop and and do something different. It's going to be better for us today. Well, one of those opportunities is a two-step process. Number one, identify your most common defensive behaviors. Identify your most common defensive behaviors. There's a, there's a book called Radical Collaboration. The, The author is Jim Tam, former judge in California who tried more I might get some of this detail wrong, but he tried more 
public school and government disputes than, than any other judge in the history of the United States. And he, he turned this, and he successfully doing so, turned this into a, this career of learning how to, or teaching companies how to negotiate and problem solve. And, and he's now, he's on staff with NASA. He works in the Ivy League school system. He, he has teachings all around the world. He's an amazing person. If you if you look for Jim Tam's info through his book, Radical Collaboration, you'll find a list of the 50 most common defensive behaviors, the natural defensive behaviors that, that we all possess. And you look at this list and you identify the, say, top five or six that you know you do. And then you look back again and what are the top three? You want to get that five or six down to a top three. And you look at this list. If you have trouble identifying which of these are, are my top defensive behaviors, Jim likes to, to tell people, well, just go to number 12 on the list. Number 12 on the list is denial. Right. We, we oh, all that's have great, the, right? I yeah. don't do that. What are you talking about? I would never do that. No, never. Of course not. <laughs> and, and of course, if you if you still have trouble identifying your defensive behaviors, the next step is ask a close relative, ask a significant other, ask one of your best friends, because they have seen your defensive behaviors and sure. they will have yeah. no they know problem you telling you what they are. Yeah, right. So step one, identify your net your defensive behaviors because following those natural defenses comes other behaviors that increase levels of fear on the team. Your next step is you create an action plan to stop what comes after the defensive behavior. So for example, if your defensive behavior is, I talk too much, I talk too much. I start, I over talk everything. When I get, when I feel defensive, I over talk everything and I need to stop that because it'll lead to other negative behaviors. So how do I stop that? Well, the moment I recognize you, you need to keep a higher level of self-awareness. And the moment you're aware that you're starting to talk a little more than normal, you pause and you reset your brain. There's lots of things you can do to reset your brain. Take a look around the room and, and recognize the different colors. And literally just call, I see, I see a, a beige plaque. I see a black picture frame. I see a rainbow colored mask, right? That, that moment, it can, you can do it just for a few seconds. Reset your look, look around. Name the different shapes. I see. I see a square. There's a. Yeah, do that same thing with dog breeds. I tell you, okay. Yes. When you get to that point, then I just want you to start rambling off dog breeds, whatever you can think of, because you're right. You have to take that moment to reset your brain. That's exactly yeah. right, and and that and that will stunt that defensive behavior yeah. in that moment, and it will alter how you continue to negotiate that current conversation. Yeah, my mom started off with telling me I had to recite the books of the Bible in order. Ah, that's a good yeah. one. I get to like Exodus. And then I was like, oh man, what's next? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you know, that same, that same process of just doing something, stop your brain and then restart again and know that when you have those thoughts or you're doing that behavior, whatever it is, stop right. yourself. Yeah. One that's important to share is, you know, think about physical sensations as well, because that, that's one that can also help keep you present in the moment. You might be in a, in a sensitive conversation with a colleague, you, you're becoming defensive. And if you take that mental pause and you start to acknowledge physical sensations, I feel the wind against my skin. I feel my hands are a little clammy. Uh, I can feel the, 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 the fold of the collar on my shirt to my neck. You know, th th just, just acknowledging a few of those physical sensations because they're, they're current, they're present in the moment. It helps you to not only reset your mind, but it keeps your mind present as well. It keeps you from deviating away from the topic 
so that the person or the people that are in your presence don't associate your moment of reset as you losing interest in the conversation. Those are some awesome tips. I'd like to move into some of the ways that you've been able to develop and retain some talented leaders in your practices. And I say that because one of the national crises our profession, well, and most professions are having right now is finding staff. And I keep going back to the practices I work with and colleagues and friends and say, yes, we all need staff, but at the same time, are we not developing and working on retaining our current team? And I would love to hear from you how you've been able to successfully develop and retain some of these key talented leaders on your team. What have you done to increase retention? For all the reasons you just mentioned, this is such a important topic for the industry right now. I mean, not just a yes, single hospital right. or an organization, but right. just to retain people in the industry. industry. I mean, yeah. Was it, was it Forbes that's calling that was the, the first I saw called the the current time the Great Resignation? I think I think something like 35% of our nation's workforce will have resigned by the end of this year. That's super scary because uh-huh. we don't have a replacement near exactly. that size. Exactly. The process for me begins with an understanding and and bringing everyone else into the same understanding of, okay, if people are leaving, let's, let's first learn what some of the reasons are behind them leaving. And these stats are roughly, I don't know, roughly five years old. So I don't, I don't know what the updated stats are and how things have changed in the last couple of years with the pandemic. Uh, I doubt they've changed much though. Most leaders believe that people leave for more money. And on average, it's about 89% of leaders believe that people leave for, for more money. Um, these, are, these are Gallup statistics for the US, not specific to the, to the veterinary industry. In reality, the average percentage that that is leaving due to money is only 12%. Yeah. Whereas right. the, the per, so, so then what is it? Why are people leaving? Well, the, the stats show approximately 79% of the people who are leaving are leaving because of the people around them. So it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the environment, right? So what, what is it that we do? Well, once we establish an understanding of a collective understanding, you know, hospital wide, when people leave our team, regardless of what they feel comfortable communicating to you verbally, if they communicate anything at all, the majority of the people who leave, what's driving them is the people around them. And you yeah. and me, we are some of those people around them. So it goes back to the environment again. And, and the leaders determine the environment. Therefore, if retention really is my focal point, once I have that understanding of where we stand, one of my first focus points in most cases is the attempt to increase intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, Those warm fuzzies. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in, intrinsically motivated people are, I believe, much easier to find in veterinary medicine than, yes, than other right? industries. I agree. These are the people who you give them the right tools. You clearly communicate expectations and you make sure that they feel comfortable 
and confident in knowing that you have their back. And then you you set them free. The last piece of the, and this is why I think veterinary medicine has more intrinsically driven people than other industries. That last piece of the puzzle is having purpose. If you can communicate purpose, their intrinsic motivation rises. And in veterinary medicine, whether you can communicate it or not, because of our love and devotion for helping animals, we have a purpose that goes above and beyond what leadership may communicate. We, we In mm-hmm. fact, it may supersede leadership's communication. I don't care yes. what you say. I'm going to save this dog. Right? Yes, like, right. So the intrinsic motivation is, is something we can focus on. For leaders who have an interest, well, where do we start? How do we increase intrinsic motivation? One fairly easy tool to understand that, that you can put to use is it's a four-step process of building intentional experiences. And, and the way we understand this, I'll, I'll say the way we understand it, but then we, we reverse engineer it. So the experiences that people have are going to promote beliefs. The beliefs that people had are going to influence actions and the actions that people take will generate results. And when we have results, we can measure our performance. So if we have an understanding of those steps, we can reverse engineer this and be strategic with our planning. If I start with results, what is my result? I want to increase retention. Okay, there's a measurable. Next step going backwards is, well, what actions are going to generate this result? Okay, well, if we know we need to improve the culture on this team, we need an environment that helps people want to stay. Well, that means we need to learn a little bit more about our people. Just like you mentioned, we start with a survey monkey. What's, you know, from an emotional support perspective, what do you really like here? What's missing? What can we add? So, so that becomes part of the action. Here, here are some actions that we can build in based on what we know is missing as a gap. And then, then it's beliefs. Okay, well, the actions are there, but it doesn't just happen. You don't just flip a switch or snap a finger and it happens. Now you have to, to build the beliefs, right? So what type of beliefs are going to be necessary to drive or influence these actions? And then once you identify what the beliefs are that can influence these particular actions, then you can be more intentional with designing and delivering experiences that promote these particular beliefs. Again, it can be more complicated when you get down, you start really strategizing on this. To start, just keep it surface level for understanding. And if if you're a leader in veterinary medicine, you're smart, you're savvy, you understand how to problem solve. Just start with understanding your experiences in your your hospital are going to promote beliefs. Your beliefs are going to influence actions. Your actions are going to generate results, which can be measured. Yeah. And it's all that trickle down effect, right? The domino effect. Yeah. Yeah, Right. And if if you get this right, you can start to increase levels of intrinsic motivation, which really builds more of a positive environment that lessens those natural fears that exist. Ultimately, we hope that that can increase some retention. Yes, I would agree. As we start to wrap up, Rob, I'd love to ask you one piece of advice that you could give our listeners today, or maybe even your younger self, if if your younger self would listen, because I know my younger self would not. But what piece of advice would you say is like, man, if I could just one thing on my soapbox, if I could just, you know, get myself to listen, or if I didn't have to do this, learn this the hard way, what would it be? So this is this is an easy one. It's it's something I've shared many times, and I can't take credit. It's not mine. However, the the meaning behind it, if you let your mind truly absorb the meaning, it's something that can affect and maybe even alter behaviors uh, immediately. It's a quote that comes from 
Mark Parker's grandmother. Mark Parker is a former CEO from Nike. This is something that his grandmother used to tell him every day that he would see her. And he ended up having a plaque made and he put this in his office at Nike. Nike has the, these Nike ethos, which is it, it's, it's every time they, they hire a new athlete, all their employees are called athletes, kind of like Disney, their cast members, right? Right, Nike is right. Athlete. When they hire a new athlete, you get this communication card that has your Nike ethos. And it's all these detailed cultural things about Nike. On the very top, of course, it says, just do it. And you open it up and it's got these five or six cultural values. And the very first one, Mark will tell you, comes direct from his grandmother. And the very first ethos that they want their team to learn is listen to learn, right? Have some purpose, listen to learn. And and so the quote that his grandmother um, always told him that led to the inclusion of this into their ethos is be a sponge. Curiosity is life. Assumption is death. Go look around. And, and the idea is there's far more to be absorbed. Don't be the hard headed kid that I was. Approach each day with intentional curiosity to learn. And, and if you do that, you can minimize your brain's potential to assume. Your brain's going to assume. You can't, you can't stop that. Every seven seconds, our brain forms an opinion. Um, there's literally nothing you can do to stop that neurologic activity. What you can choose to do is not buy into the assumption your brain has drawn. And, and therefore, approach with intentional curiosity. Understand that assumption is, is going to exist and you need to intentionally remove yourself from it. And, and with that understanding, go take a look around. Walk around the treatment area and, and see what you can learn today that was different than yesterday. Walk around the medical offices and, and, and see what you can learn from the doctors today. Walk around the reception area and see what you can learn from the clients today. You know, Have some intentional curiosity and, and remove those assumptions. I love it. Be curious. Yes. Well, we've talked a lot about some big, heavy, chunky terms and leadership skills and what we can bring to the table as managers in the practice and leaders in our practice. So let's talk about something a little bit lighter and maybe have some more fun with it. And sure. I know you've had these encounters. They are all about either an encounter with a client or maybe a staff member, a team member, an employee or an athlete, I should say, according to Nike, maybe a practice <laughs> owner or executive, someone higher up on the food chain. But we've had these moments when your chin hits the ground, like your palm goes to your forehead, eyes pop out like pugs, and you say like, no shit, this just happened. Like, yes. pinch me. Am I dreaming? Is this is this real? Like, no way this just happened. Um, you can't make this shit up. So Rob, change the names to protect the innocent, but give us your story. <laughs> I like this. I'm going to take, I'll, I'll take a complete left turn. So I, I, in, in the world of leadership, I have this nonprofit organization it operates in 40 countries around, around the world. And it, it supports teenage entrepreneurs. Uh, because of this, I get to spend a considerable amount of time in other countries. It's really helped me open my lines of perspective coming back into veterinary medicine after each international experience. But there was one in particular, because of this nonprofit, I sometimes have access to some experiences that are a little outside the norm, right? And, and because of my love of animals and vet med, my outside the norm experiences end up being in the wild. So whether it's swimming with 15 foot giant mantas in the Philippines or 
taking a ride on the back of a, a whale shark off of the coast of Isla Mujeres down in the Caribbean, um, swimming outside the cage with great whites. Uh, it, there have been it's some epic, yeah, wow. there have been some amazing, the, the jaw drop one we were, we were in, um, oh gosh, it was either, I think it was, it was either Zambia or I think it was Zambia. So someone took us out and there was, there was three of us took us out to photograph some black rhinos. And there was a large black rhino about 50 yards away and I'm photographing and the guy's got us on this old Russian military vehicle that they use to, to navigate around the, the African bush. And so there's no top. It's easy for photography. And so I'm, I'm taking pictures. He turns the engine off. It's an old diesel engine, which reverberates a lot. So he turns it off to stop the vibrations. And I'm photographing and something gets this rhino's attention and he starts running in our direction. I'm oh, thinking no. this is great. I mean, you know, great, you know, shots of the rhino literally running right at us. Oh, no. And, 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 and from the side, running at us from the side. So even the, 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 the trekker, which his name was, they called him Dan, the danger ranger. This was probably my oh, first. Gosh, that, can't be good. <laughs> that, that, that should have been my first. Right. First play, that's right? a first clue. <laughs> so this, this rhino's running at us and Dan's like, yeah, get the shot, get the shot. And I'm shooting. And once the rhino's probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe a little more than across a normal street. So maybe 30 to 50 feet away. He starts, he, he starts to turn the, the key to start the engine. And the engine's not starting. So he turns it once. He turns it twice. I'm looking at this guy like, you're Dan the Danger Ranger. I get it. You're trying to make this an experience. Right. I just keep, so I just keep looking through the lens. Game's and I'm over. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's messing with us, right? And so I'm shooting, shooting, shooting. And I realize, I look up from the lens. The rhino's not 30 feet away. The rhino's about to hit us. <laughs> and so I look. I, I then look forward. I'm still shooting though. Like I'm still pulling the camera trigger as I look forward and he's not kidding. He's panicked. And the engine turns right at the same time as the rhino gets to us. So the engine turns, he puts the car in gear. And remember it's a Russian military vehicle. So we're sitting about six feet off the ground, five to six feet off the ground. And there's this big gigantic steel wheel well that covers the wheel. This three ton black rhino gets to the wheel well right as he puts the car in gear and and hits the gas as the rhino puts his horn under the wheel well and puts oh, no. us on the wheels so <laughs> i'm thinking in my mind i'm literally thinking this is a jurassic park moment where the the vehicle's going to be over the on the top of us and right. this dinosaur right. is just going to be pushing the car until he can get us right so he the the horn nails the the steel wheel well, puts us on two wheels, and thank goodness the the vehicle falls back to all fours and and we can drive away. Holy so cow! The jaw drop was holy shit. This rhino literally hit us um, when we when we got far enough away to stop and look. The, the of course destroyed the steel piece of of metal that over that was covering the wheel. Um, the end result was. I got the shot. So <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? 
Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So Rob, as we start to wrap up the podcast, we have this section called the Rapid Fire and it's where basically I ask you a couple of hard-hitting questions and we get to that kind of Freudian right off the tongue response. Are you ready to go? Ready to go. All right. So tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. One of my most epic falls uh, was about six or seven years ago when I was telling a story of practice innovation and I was giving a scenario of what a practice of the future might look like. And unbeknownst to me, there was a CSR who was in the audience this person was having emotional effect from what I was sharing as the practice of the future, potentially anyway, as a practice of the future. And this person, by the end of the story, was was clearly distraught. And, and by the time I, I recognized and acknowledged, she, she started crying. And it took a few minutes of coaxing and supporting and, and displaying some empathy before she disclosed that she's worried about losing her job in veterinary medicine. She loved working in the reception areas of hospitals. It was her career and she didn't want to lose it. She thought that my words of potential practice of the future equaled, we will no longer have reception teams and I will no longer have a job. And the, the, the takeaway I had that moment was a, a, ginormous increase of self-awareness for levels of influence. And it's, it's not just your words, it's, it's your tone, it's your volume, it's your presence, right? And that, that was a big moment for me to really have a greater understanding of the levels of influence that people have in general, myself specific in this regard, right? This, this was a great opportunity for me to self-examine and to start becoming a little more intentional with how I maybe tell stories, how I engage, how I interact, knowing that there will be, whether intended or unintended, there will be some sort of influence. And therefore, it's time for me to be more intentional with what the influence is I have. Tell me about your proudest moment. More than eight years ago, I'd given a talk, something about engagement and one of the pieces of this talk encourages people to choose one of five things that they can do for the next 21 days to help jumpstart a shift of behaviors. And one of the options was 21 days of consecutive acts of service. This person apparently had been trying for close to two full years to accomplish 21 consecutive days. And for whatever the reason, there would always be a day. There was just a day that she missed here, a day that she missed there. And two years later, she finally got to 21 consecutive. And her 21st day, her act of service for her 21st day was to send me a thank you note, handwritten, that included a little 
keychain charm of a Weimariner because she knew that my Weimariner of 16 years had just passed away. So for that to be her 21st day and for her to to be mindful of something that was part of a talk from, you know, two years prior and she stayed at it for two years until she accomplished it was was pretty amazing. You know, again, influence. There was enough influence that that she continued on and she connected it to my heart and soul of my boy Preston, my Weimariner. So that was a big one. Why veterinary medicine? What do you just love about our profession? That one's easy, David. It's it's because we care. You know, the type of work I do, if I go into other industries, one of the first things that I need to do is identify who even wants to be there. In veterinary medicine, most everyone actually wants to be here. I mean, let's be honest, we're not here for the paycheck. <laughs> this isn't the most lucrative industry. And for me, that's a positive. You know, we, we wouldn't stay if we didn't truly care and want to be here. We care for each other. We care for our clients. And, and most important, we care for our, our pets. And you just don't see that with this level of consistency in any other industry. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? It's conscious decision-making for, for how I manage my time. Stress for me is, is more of a perception and a, and a decision that we can make. So some people might think decompressing from a stressful day. No, for me, it's, it's decompressing from a, an exciting day. And that decompression isn't that necessarily at the end of the day. I, I might have two hours that are super intense in the morning and I decompress for the next hour with a, with a run. And then I'm back at it for another couple of hours. And, and that's just the example of one day. The, the next day might be completely different. So my, my self-care is, is in conscious decision-making throughout the day. What do I need at this moment to be the best in this moment and to perhaps prepare for what's coming in the next moment? How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? You know, work-life balance is an interesting conversation. My, my perspective has shifted quite a bit over the years. Right now, I don't perceive work-life balance as being a quality conversation. I think removing the word work from the, from the conversation is more appropriate. It's, it's achieving balance. And work is one of many categories or many topics within that day. I need balance today. Work is just one of several pieces to that puzzle. I need balance with work, balance with my dog, balance with my friends, balance with my family, balance with doing my laundry, balance with my exercise, balance with my nutrition. And, and every day is going to present a, a different Tetris matrix, if you would, of, of opportunity to figure out how you're going to fit your pieces into this daily puzzle. So balance to me is, is just negotiating each day as an individual opportunity to, to figure out what's going to work best for you. What keeps you up at night? Things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your consultancy, your primary job, your life? You know, the first part I mentioned a moment ago about stress, stress for me is more of a decision. You know, you, you change your perspective. It changes the physiological reactions. It changes the emotional reactions. And so stress is definitely not a piece of a category that keeps me up. The anxiety, sure. Anxiety will keep me up once in a while. And it's, it's going to relate more to my own individual expectations for myself. You know, I, I, I have an interview the next morning and I want to perform well because I, I, I was invited by someone who I know and respect. 
um, and I want to show up well for them. You know, that that's going to give me a little anxiety the night before. I'm also going to be excited, and, and it's it's a it's a positive anxiety. It's not something that's 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 causing me the stress that you might otherwise expect. But it's it's a level of anxiety that drives me to not disappoint other people. And if it's not the anxiety that's going to keep me up, then it's 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 simply the the excitement that comes with creative and innovative thoughts. You know, I'm one of those people who keeps the notepad by my bed. And as those thoughts come to mind, I like to immediately start putting pen to paper and, and playing out how the storytelling fits with these creative and innovative thoughts. And it's it's those moments more than any that will keep me up at night. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? So I, I, I tried intentionally to avoid cliche moments and quotes. And and this is one, however, that is a quote from a person, people whose name they'll recognize. And there's a personal connection here. So there's a little more depth of meaning when I share this, but it's, it's from Kobe Bryant and, and Kobe, by chance, I got to work with him for, for 11 years. And this isn't just something that you would hear him say on TV. This is something I heard him say to me and to many other people. And, and it's everything that you do, you have to do it to the best of your ability. And, and because of the relationship I had with him, it just, it struck differently. It was one of those, those consistent pieces of information that he shared with me with consistency for a very long time. When I look at what gets me excited to get up in the, the, in the morning, it's the opportunity to do better than I did yesterday. That, that's the piece that gets me the most excited. That, that's a driver for me. Wow, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rob. This has this been great. great. It was great to have you on. If, uh, if anyone ever reaches out to find me, I'm pretty easy to find. Our best 13 is, is my Instagram. Um, or just find me Rob Best on LinkedIn or Facebook. And thank you so much. Can't tell you how much I appreciate you. And yes, be well, stay healthy, and, and talk soon. Thank you. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current and do not represent 
present the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.